Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast, brought to you by HarperCollins Publishers. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Hey, it's Lainey from the Library Love Fest marketing team, and I'm here with Virginia Stanley, Chris Connolly, and we're so excited to be a part of the inaugural episode of Shelf Care Bookless New Podcast. We have a podcast. We love podcasts. We're super excited to be a part of Bookless New Step Out into the World of Podcasting. Should we so, give them a round of applause? Ooh. Woo! I love cheering. <laughs> So thank you for letting us be a part of it, Booklist. Uh, we're going to talk about some of our new upcoming favorite reads, and then we have a fun interview at the end, so stick around. And Chris, you want to tell us a little bit about your interview? Sure. I had the opportunity to sit down with the one and only Neil Stevenson. If you're familiar with Neil, I don't need to tell you anything more than that for you to be geeking out right now. But if you are unfamiliar, he is the New York Times best-selling author of myriad novels, uh, including Ream D, Seven Eves, and then his upcoming novel coming this June, which is Fall or Dodge in Hell. And we dive deep into his writing and some of the themes within uh, Dodge, and um, I'm absolutely thrilled with it, so I can't wait to share it with you all. Stick around. It's so good. Sounds like an NPR interview. I put on my NPR voice. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, uh, yeah, we thought we would uh, talk about uh, a couple of books that uh, we're all kind of loving, and then um, sit back and listen to Chris and Neil Stevenson talk about that pretty wild book. Um, so, um I'm Virginia, and I have, um, I don't know, I have this one book that I'm just absolutely crazy about. I, I sort of like coming-of-age books. I like, I like real family books. I like, um, I like a twisty psychological thriller, but I really love to sink my teeth into a good family story. Um, and I have a good family story here, and this is a nonfiction. This is um, a story about, um, by Kate Mulgrew the actress uh, who um, many of you know from uh, her days back when she was in Ryan's Hope. Um, she played Mary Ryan in that soap opera, and uh, she was Captain uh, Catherine Janeway on Star Trek Voyager on television, and most recently she has been um, playing Red Reznikov in Orange is the New Black. Um, but, you know, she's, she has uh, done stage and screen and small TV. She was even Mrs. Columbo back when the TV series Columbo played. Then after Columbo, there was Mrs. Columbo, and she played the wife. It was really cool. Anyway, um, she uh, this is her memoir. This is she has written a book prior to this one called Born with Teeth. We did not publish that book. However, we are so lucky to have this book, um, and uh, at Harper Collins, it's uh, it's um, a story about her parents. Um, both of her parents um, are in failing health, 
and she has been called by her brother Joe to come and help him. Um, their father is um, experiencing some difficulty with um, his his sight. One of his is the lens on his on his uh, on his glasses isn't quite working right, and they think that's all it is. But it turns out it's much more than that. And um, at the time that this is um, sort of unveiling itself, uh, Kate Mulgrew is. Um, she is not even in the state. She is um, doing a, a one-woman show about Katherine Hepburn, and she gets this phone call, and she knows she has to go um, and be with her brother and help their father. So that's how the book starts out. The first half of the book is dedicated uh, to her uh, to her father and uh, his life and her relationship with him, her siblings' relationship with him, and her mother's relationship with him. So she's—it's so powerful. It's—I um, don't know. It's very—it's very—it's incredibly honest. It's raw. It's real. There's no ego in this book at all. It's amazing how there is no ego. I mean, she—she—she she, she talks about her father, and you know he. He knocks her down a peg or two sometimes, you know, reminds her of her beginnings and where she came from, which was Dubuque, Iowa. And um, sometimes calls her, like, reminds her, like, hey, big shot, remember where you came from, that sort of thing. And she puts that in there. I love that she puts that in there. And the second half of the book is uh, dedicated to her mother. When I say dedicated, the book in and of itself is dedicated to her mother. But the first half of the book is about her father, and the second half of the book is about her mother. Um, and who is in failing health too. So yes, this is a, a sad book on many levels, but it's also this, uh, I don't know, it's like this peeling back of these layers of this onion and getting to the meat of what is this family. And these two people who shaped her and these two people who you come to know um, you know, sort of who they are before they became parents, who they were, who their family was, who, who their parents were. Um, and I, you know, the, the thing that I keep thinking about this book is that you don't need to be a follower of her, of her theatrical work, of her, you know, her, of any of that. You don't need to know who she is, frankly, to appreciate this book. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. If you're a follower of her work, that's great. If you aren't, don't make that the reason to not pick up this book because it is one of the most honest, raw, kind of funny at times. There were times when I was laughing out loud and she just goes there. And I somehow, she has managed to make this a book that anybody would want to read. Anybody can relate to this book. Everybody's got a family. Everybody's got their stuff. Every family's got their stuff. Somewhere down the road, everybody's got or has had um, an aging parent or parent figure who can relate to what she is going through. I don't know if I'll ever be able to do this book justice because it's just so good and I just don't want people to not read it because it's by a celebrity. It's not a celebrity memoir. It's a story about family. Oh, it's so good. I've read it twice. Wow. I've read this book twice now. Wow. Yep. It's great. Okay, that's Kate Mulgrew. It's called How to Forget. It goes on sale in May. Do yourselves a favor and read this book. Reading twice says a lot. For those of you reading at home, I'm sure you're big readers. We're big readers. We have to read a lot for work, a lot for work. 
and to read one thing all the way through sometimes yeah. can feel like a feat. To read something twice, and I think that does signify yeah. something truly special. Yeah. So. Very excited about this. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Connolly, and I am a big fan of genre mashups. I love anything literary sci-fi, literary horror, literary, literary. I guess that's not a mashup. That's just literary. I just like when the genres meet and you have something very fresh and new um, out of that pairing. So the novel that I'm going to be talking about is The Confessions of Franny Langton by Sarah Collins. This is a debut. Sarah is a British author. Um, she worked as a lawyer, actually, for 17 years before delving into creative writing. And this is her debut, and it's a big one. It's historical fiction with a little horror built in, um, a mystery. And it follows Franny, who is a young woman. She grew up as a slave on this Jamaican plantation. And from a very young age, it was obvious that she's incredibly intelligent and observant and quick. And you follow her as she grows up. But this is all told kind of as a retrospective because Franny is now in Georgian London. She's grown and she stands accused of murdering her master and his wife. And so she's recalling her life, again, starting at this Jamaican plantation where she essentially helped this plantation owner attempt some really pretty horrific experiments in the name supposedly of science, but, you know, he's this plantation owner was convinced that there were certain racial things you could discover that would explain differences between the races. Really, you know, horrific, ugly stuff. But because Franny was literate and smart, this plantation owner took her her under his wing to assist him with all these experiments and she saw a lot and she had to carry that throughout her life as she grows up um, but this owner sells her to this couple in Georgia and London she moves there it's this huge shock and the way that Sarah paints Georgia and London is, is really accurate and immersive and gritty and you can just kind of feel the smog and the smoke on your skin and smell the streets it's impactful I guess you could say but the mystery comes into play when Franny wakes up one morning and her new master and his wife are murdered. And she stands accused and she's the one who has to kind of tell her story because no one else will. No one else is going to give her the time of day. She's a young black woman who in this society is just viewed as worth essentially nothing. Again, it's a mystery in that you're trying to get to the bottom of what happened between Franny, her her master, and his wife. There's also a little bit of a romance between herself and the, the wife, which um, is very interesting. Just as you're, you hear and you see this through Franny's voice, and she's brilliant and eloquent. Um, and I have some great quotes here, but um, yeah, just to summarize this, again, it has this wonderful genre blend of mystery and um, historical fiction, literary. Um, so just a few quotes here. One, I have this wonderful starred review from Kirkus, and they say, Collins' debut novel administers a bold and vibrant jolt to both the gothic and historical fiction genres. Most of all, she has created in her title character a complex, melancholy, and trenchantly observant protagonist, as dynamic and compelling as any character conceived by a Bronte sister. A gripping, ground-breaking debut. Um, and then I just love this super long, praise-worthy sentence from this book list review. Uh, and they say, um, 
They call it a heady gothic mad scientist, Bildungsroman lesbian feminist portrait of a marriage slave narrative, upstairs, downstairs, murder, mystery, courtroom drama. Fans of any of these elements will be drawn to this absorbing novel of a woman boxed in by geography, chronology, gender, and the color of her skin. Yeah, it's it's just a brilliant novel, and a lot of hard and ugly things happen in this novel. There's some comeuppance for people, but I think what makes it so readable is Franny's voice and that character, and she pulls you through all the horrible things that she goes through, and ultimately makes it a very rewarding novel to read. I just really loved it. Uh, so this is coming May 21st, and that's The Confessions of Franny Langton by Sarah Collins. Hi, it's Lainey. I like to read a little all over the place. Contemporary women's fiction and romance, but also like true crime. Um, I know that those are very different, but I like them both. I just like something that tells a good story and then I'm going to remember and it's going to stick with me, but I also like to learn something new. So... That's what I like to read. And a good example of romance that I'm going to go into, we have several exciting rom-coms coming up. That's the hot topic word, and we have a few coming up. But one I want to talk about today is Pride, Prejudice, and Other Flavors by Sonali Dave. So this one is a Pride and Prejudice spinoff in a way. I know some people get a little fatigued hearing that because I think they do that a lot to this book. But I, I love that book, and this one is... Totally fine. No need to worry. Um, It's a fresh take on it. And Sonali actually is an award-winning author. She has four past romance novels. She won ALA's Best Romance Award in 2014. She also is a really big advocate for own voices and diversity in romance. So a lot of people know her from that. She has a Lit with Love from Author's Voice web series that's really cool you should check out. Um, And she's really great at getting behind authors and giving them a voice and finding something interesting. But on to her book, Pride, Prejudice, and Other Flavors, which is going to be one of two in a series. So that's exciting. You can get on board with this family. We find the Rajays, who are a family moving from India, and they move to San Francisco. Trisha is the main person in this story, and she kind of fills the role of a Darcy character in a way. I'll get to that in a second. But her family is descended from royalty um, in India. So they they know that they're important and they come over and it's kind of a pull yourself up by your bootstraps story. Her dad makes his way in this world in San Francisco and she has several brothers and sisters and they all know that they have to live up to this name. And uh, unfortunately, Trisha is not living up to that. She's made a mistake 13 years ago and her family just doesn't see her as being the the family go-getter that most of them are. So she's kind of the outcast in the black sheep, but she's really proud, haha, <laughs> the name. She's really proud and she is a brilliant surgeon, so she's really big in her field. And she meets DJ Kane, who is a chef, and he brings his sister Emma in to have her eyes looked at. Emma's an artist, and her eyes are kind of going in and out, and so comes to find out that Trisha has to make this really big, life-saving surgery on Emma, but she could lose her sight. So you're going back and forth with that, and DJ's kind of realizing he has to take care of his sister Emma. She's really important to him, and they've moved over from England. So there's a lot of different things going on. There's the immigrant story on both sides of these families. There's race that comes into it. You have Trisha and DJ who are a love interest, and I think that 
Sonali does a good job mixing the story of Pride and Prejudice. You're not just getting the, like, she is the Elizabeth character, he is the Darcy character. She kind of switches it and turns it on its head. And then she also puts little Easter eggs in there. So if you know the story really well, you can kind of see what she's done to mix up these families. Trisha has a lot of the family members. She's really close to her brothers and sisters, which is more of an Elizabeth thing, although she does take the more Darcy characteristics from the book. So it's really fun to see this mashup. It's not anything I've seen before, and I've read several reiterations of this story. Um, I think you're really going to like finding the little Easter eggs. Um, Also, DJ is a chef, so all the food in here sounds delicious, and you're going to be hungry by the end. And I just think it's a great show of an unlikely female heroine. Uh, Trisha is, being the Darcy character, she's a little misunderstood, so you can kind of understand some of her thoughts, the thoughts behind some of her behaviors, and I think that's really interesting too. It's such a fun book. It's, it really, it does have heavier subjects in the background. Sonali is such a big advocate for diversity and romance. You can really see that coming through as well, and it's just, it's got a lot of things to think about and a lot of things to talk about. It's great for book clubs, I think, and uh, I'm excited for y'all to read it. It comes out May 7th, and that's Pride, Prejudice, and Other Flavors by Sonali Dave. So there, there's a taste of some of the books that we are jazzed about. And uh, there's, as Chris said, we read a lot of books, and there are a lot more that we are, um, that we're, that we're really excited about that have set our hearts aflutter. <laughs> but, um, but uh, and so tune in again, and you'll hear more of that. And please listen to the fabulous interview that, NPR's Chris Connolly, I mean Library at Love Fest, Chris Connolly, has conducted with Neil Stevenson. It is a gem, and what an honor to have that exclusive interview specifically for Library Love Fest. I mean, that was quite, uh, that's quite something, and uh, I don't know, I just, I just love that interview. So if you're a fan of his, you'll, you're in for a treat, and if you've never read him before, uh, this is a great introduction, actually, Chris. I think it's a great I introduction so. for people who um, have not dipped a toe into his world because I think you guys really kind of like deconstruct like what this new book is about and -hmm. and make it uh, very um, accessible to those who've not uh, read it read that kind of a book. I had a ton of fun talking to Neil I think this book is a great entry point if you have not read him and for all of those fans who are eagerly anticipating his follow-up you will not be disappointed. This is Neil turned up to 11, and you'll absolutely adore it. So please do check it out and let us know what you think. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Connolly with the HarperCollins Library Marketing Team, and it is my great honor today to be interviewing Mr. Neil Stevenson, the New York Times and revered best-selling author of Cryptonomicon, Snow Crash, Reem D. Seven Eves, Rise and Fall of Dodo, which you co-wrote with Nicole Gallen, amongst many, many more. Thank you so much for joining me today, Neil. It's good to be here. So your next novel, Fall or Dodge in Hell, is coming this summer, and it's a sequel of sorts to your 2011 novel, Reem D. Could you kind of tell listeners what the novel is about and how it ties to Reem D? Yeah, it's not your uh, ordinary sequel. It uh, takes us off on a pretty wild tangent from uh, from the end of Reem D, but it involves uh, a few of the same characters. So at the risk of spoiling the first couple chapters, what happens is that the main character, whose nickname is Dodge, dies during a uh, routine medical procedure. And somewhat later, his brain 
is scanned and he is brought back to digital life in the cloud as part of an experiment on disrupting death. And so the uh, the book follows a kind of uh, two-track storyline where uh, one track is techno-thriller type a story that's set in uh, in the world we all live in. And the other track is detailing the adventures of the digital reincarnation of Dodge in the digital world. And the timeline is really interesting. And you've spoken before how your novels are usually, you know, they're, they're more than one novel. They're usually like three novels built into one overarching story. But one thing that I found really striking early, you know, Dodge, he, he passes away and then they're still working on the technology to get to the point where they can really do a, a quality upload of his mind. But you follow his grandniece, Sophia, and she's with her friends. She's traveling on this road trip across America and they go through Ameristan. And you describe some of the circumstances surrounding this not so different world from the one we're living in now. Could you talk about that both with, you know, kind of the religious fragmentation and, and how people are being fed news that kind of causes a feedback loop? Sounds a little familiar. Yeah. So Ameristan is um, not just one particular geographical region, but it's a kind of place that's everywhere and nowhere at the same time. The boundary between Ameristan and the rest of America is is sort of uh, surrounds every city and runs parallel to every interstate highway. But I guess to make a long story short, it's kind of me thinking that although we might look down our nose sometimes at regions of the world that are torn by sectarian strife and religious controversy, at any given point, we're only one or two generations out from becoming one of those places. Hmm. And that's an interesting part about this book because, again, listening to past interviews, something about sci-fi or speculative fiction is kind of the hope versus, you know, this dystopian trend that's so popular, or at least has been popular. And I remember first reading your 2015 novel, Seven Eves, which I totally geeked out about. I absolutely loved it. But one thing that struck me about that novel was the optimism you know, the world's essentially ending and yet everyone kind of comes together in this common cause to avoid complete extinction. And with this novel, there's still optimism, but especially with this scene in Ameristan in this very fragmented country, does your optimism kind of fluctuate when you're writing a specific book and you're researching it? Well, I guess the difference between those two books is is buried in your question when you mentioned the year 2015. So <laughs> the, the difference yeah. between uh, Seven Eves and Fall is 2016. Mm. Um, and so uh, I, I don't want to overstress this aspect of the book because it's it really amounts to a kind of vignette that happens fairly early in the story. Mm-hmm. And we don't really go back there, but it is an important piece of setting the stage for what the world looks like. And yeah, it's it's not super optimistic. <laughs> it, in in spite of you know, in spite of the efforts that I made with um, the hieroglyph series and so on to um, to try to think about the future and encourage other people to think about the future in a somewhat more positive and optimistic way, there comes a point where uh, you have to deal with the world as it's presented to you. And I, I think that comes to a front. I don't want to spoil anything, but there's a big occurrence in Moab, the Moab desert, and it has to do with 
fake news, uh, such a hot, hot button item. Do you want to talk a little bit about that without making it? Yeah, sort of in, in general terms, I'll say that I, I wrote that material prior to the 2016 election, thinking that it was super hip and forward looking and maybe a little, a little unrealistic, a little over the top. And then after 2016, I had to kind of go back and, and scrape that down to the bare metal and think about it again, because overnight it suddenly seemed kind of jejune and, uh, and, and dated. Well, you do have a habit of, in one way or another, writing about certain technological or social advancements or if you want to call them advancement before they happen. So did you get that feeling here versus, you know, some of your other novels where that's happened? So this book is a little different from some of the others in that it's meant to have more of a a fable-like quality. Uh, This is not me trying to seriously geek out on the technology of brain scanning Mm -hmm. and neural simulation to the same degree of detail that I did, for example, with rockets in Mm. Seven Eves. Just because I'm doing a different thing here and didn't want to get lost in the weeds, wanted to advance the, the human story instead. So this is not one that you would look to for super detailed and realistic mm-hmm. coverage of uh, brains and, and brain simulation, but more of a uh, more of a myth or a fable. And, and that is, I mean, as the story progresses and we do become more entrenched in that really, really fun, adventurous fable story, we spend less time in meat space. And I didn't know if that was a case where, again, I know you said, you know, don't read, don't read into this too much, but essentially what happens in the story is brain upload becomes a far more normalized thing in society. And most people are doing it. Do you feel like that means the real world becomes slightly less important for people as the afterlife becomes this very tangible, attainable thing? Well, there's a, a sort of blend from one state of affairs to another over the course of the the book that I think it, it's hard to to fully answer your question without kind of revealing the entire mm. architecture uh, of of the world. But certainly the uh, it covers a long span of time. So some of the characters are something like a hundred years old by the time we get to the end of the book, mm-hmm. and over the course of the story, most of the characters that we meet early in the book, have grown old and, and died of various causes and made the transition into the, the digital realm. So along with that, it's kind of natural that we spend more time with them where they've been, where they've gone to, uh, and less time in, in meat space with mm-hmm. the, the, the dwindling minority of characters who, uh, who are still living there. Sure. And I think, you know, we, we talked about the kind of the latter half of the, of the book being this, you know, kind of great fable, but you also have the opportunity in the midst of it to write this creation myth for those of you listening at home. Again, Dodge passes away. They're working on doing this brain upload and then finally, you know, turning him on, you know, waking him up. And he's the first and he's this, you know, he doesn't really know what's happening. He's waking up, to use your term, to chaos. Did How was writing that creation myth and was it challenging in any unique ways? Uh, well, chaos is a thing I've been thinking about for a long time. I used to have uh, dreams about it when I was a kid. 
back in the days when uh, we had analog television and a, uh, a, a television set that wasn't tuned in properly would just show mm-hmm. static and, and play white noise on the screen. And for some mm-hmm. reason, that sort of got into my brain when I was a kid. And later on, when you read uh, origin myths from from various ancient mythologies, there's frequently depiction of of God or a God fashioning the universe, making the world out of chaos. And so more recently, you know, we've chaos has become something that mathematicians and scientists talk about. And so I've always been a little bit drawn to the idea of chaos and the idea that something can be made out of of chaos and that things can revert back into chaos mm-hmm. over time. So that's definitely a theme that is, is, is addressed over and over again in this book. And you also have a pretty extensive background in game design. So how did that play into this story? Well, I, I don't necessarily think of myself or, or call myself a game designer, but I've kind of been around it enough mm-hmm to get a sense of what real game designers do for a living and what the engineers who implement those designs do for a living. And it's a, kind of a fascinating industry in that you've got a, a bunch of, of geeks and artists who are, who are trying to simulate a coherent reality in a way that, that will actually run on real hardware. And so as such, it's subject to constraints on on engineering. There's only so much memory uh, available. There's only so much processing power that you can throw at the problem. And so both the engineers and the artists have to make thousands of of decisions about how they're going to simplify the process, uh, how they're going to get the simulation to actually work uh, on the equipment that they've got. That is all sort of reflected in the in the book as as the uh, the digital universe starts out in a very crude form and develops greater complexity and realism as the years go by and that's always something i've found fascinating in your work is you know when very smart creative people with huge aspirations and that butts heads with the very real world limitations of what technology is at that moment And you've talked about your love for Dungeons and Dragons role-playing games before. And the last third of this book is very much this epic fantasy quest. And it's a lot of fun. And I'm just curious if you want to talk about writing that because you you gently poke fun at certain tropes therein. It can be a little difficult right now to to just write straight up high fantasy narrative without some level of self-awareness about everything that's that's gone before it's it's it can be difficult to kind of play that straight and so in this case what's going on is that you've got a world of people who have woken up they've died uh, they've come back to life in digital form uh, and they've forgotten almost everything they um, but they've still got certain kind of fractured memories and habits of thought uh, that are reflected in their scanned brains. And so the world that they create is sort of cobbled together from uh, fragmentary memories and just notions that they're carrying in their heads about the way things ought to be. And, and part of that is, you know, what did they read? What movies did they see? What games did they play Mm -hmm. when they were alive? 
And so all of those things kind of end up being manifested in the, the new digital world that's created, but it's in kind of a mashed up and mixed up form. Well, and like I said, it, it was a lot of fun to read, really enjoyed it. But, you know, one thing I, I think with both creation myth as well as, you know, classic fantasy story is the concept of evil. You know, there's always this great evil involved or behind the scenes. And in Fall or Dodge in Hell, we have El Shepard, who would be considered probably the antagonist of this story. When you're writing a book like this, do you deal with evil with a capital E? Is that something that you you write or is it more you're just looking for some like an antagonist to move the story along well on one level you do need an antagonist to move the story along and he's definitely that but it's um it's it's interesting and and maybe useful to think about where do we get the idea of evil where does it come mm. from when you see sauron in the Lord of the Rings or some other kind of legendary bad guy, you at some point have to start asking yourself what motivates these people. You know, I mean, just, I don't think most people just get up in the morning and say, I'm going to be evil today. Mm-hmm. So even, even Sauron uh, has got to have um, some kind of a plan or some kind of vision of where this is all leading. And there have been some really interesting takes on the Lord of the Rings mythos, for example, in which people try to write stories from the point of view of an orc in Mordor hmm. who uh, is just a sort of hardworking, you know, miner or yeah. soldier in an industrial economy. And the uh, the elves and the humans are this kind of quasi-fascist, uh, you know, aristocratic group that thinks they, they all think they know what's best. So rather than just put in an evil guy mm-hmm. and have the evil guy do evil things. Uh, what I'm trying to do here is is write a book in which there is that antagonist, there is the big bad, mm-hmm. but the big bad has got a plan and a reason for for what he's doing that, that isn't necessarily obvious to most of the people who are living in that world. Mm-hmm. And that really does, I think, you know, the greatest villains are generally ones who are not one-dimensional, just evildoers. They they have their reasoning that they can justify to themselves. And occasionally you might, a, a little bit of you agree, depending on, on your personality. But I did find him absolutely fascinating. One thing, and I, I know we want to avoid getting too speculative here because it is, it's is—it's a great, fun fantasy novel there, at least the, the last third. But when you know, we're talking about society and you know people are slowly, you know, this we're kind of dealing with the death of death at this point. Like people are living knowing that life goes on in bit world as it's called in the yeah. novel in the background how did you how would you see this like you know do world religions slowly fade away or are people giving up their normal everyday lives i'm just curious how you would see society as a whole reacting to the death of death i think it's a split kind of reaction i think <clears throat> on the one hand if you think about it intellectually knowing that death is has been disrupted or defeated is a really big deal. And it feels like it ought to change everything. On the other hand, even though we all know intellectually at some level that we're going to die, most people very rarely think about that. Mm -hmm. Most people spend 99% of their lives just living their lives. Mm -hmm. And so I'm actually not clear in my own mind as to how much it would change things. It feels like it should change everything to know that. And yet, when you think about 
people living their everyday lives, the the changes might not actually be that great. Mm -hmm. yeah. So there, I mean, there there could have been you know a much longer book here in in which we we go around and see how all the different religious groups deal with this change, but there's only so much room in the book. And for the reason I mentioned earlier, I I wanted to kind of shift things over into bit world and follow the characters rather than devote a ton of time to staying behind on earth and figuring out all of those ramifications. And just to close on this book, fall, which is it's obviously an important word and concept in the book. You have Dodge's death. It takes place in the fall. You have the fall of the internet effectively early in the book. We have the fall of Dodge in Bitworld and the ensuing battle over Bitworld. Both Greek and Roman society and myth play heavily in the book, both great societies that ultimately fell. And one of the most vital characters in Bitworld is Spring, who embodies birth and growth and life. Is this how you see progress kind of as a series of falls and failures or step backs and then the ensuing progress through the ashes? Well, things do tend to fall over. <laughs> I just, uh, we're, I'm in Seattle where um, thanks to the recent weather, a bunch of trees have fallen over recently and we're all having to drive around them, you know, and, and some of them are pretty magnificent trees, but they only last for so long and eventually something brings them down. Uh, and then new, hopefully new things grow out of, uh, of what's left behind. So uh, the, that cycle of, of fall and spring is something that's kind of encoded into our mythology at a pretty deep level. You know, we've got the myth of Persephone in ancient Greek literature, which kind of shows up again in a sort of fractured form in fall. And so, so I decided to, to name the book Fall and to make it kind of a, a recurring theme just because it kept popping up uh, everywhere I looked, and it just felt like the right thing to name this book. One thing that I found really, really interesting, a big driver for L is, you know, he wants this world, this bit world that's been created by Dodge to be entirely new and entirely fresh and not bound by the limitations of meat space. But really, it's this mythology and these stories that have been passed along as you know, humanity has grown and developed, but we're still kind of following the same tropes. And that's what happens also in Bitworld um, as it's created. And I really find that fight and pull to be very, very interesting. And it's a big driver in the story as well. Well, thank you. It's, it's an old question. And it's a thing that, that Kant talks about when he's taking down Leibniz. So the idea that there are certain grooves worn into our brains that are just inseparable from being conscious creatures. And, and so it's pointless to, to try to think outside of, the, of that box. So I'm not claiming to, to have the answer, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Absolutely. Well, that's all the questions I have for you, Neil. Is there anything else you want to say about the book before we close? No, just that I, I hope that, uh, that people will pick it up and, and have a look at it. You know, I think it's a, a fun and unusual combination of techno thriller and high fantasy that once you get used to the premise, should be a fun read. Fall or Dodge and Hell goes on sale June 4th of this year. This is Chris Connolly with the HarperCollins Library Marketing Team talking to Mr. Neil Stevenson. Neil, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for doing it. Uh, it was a fun interview. <laughs>